All right, ladies and gentlemen, sorry we're a little bit late and we were having coffee. It's a great pleasure today to introduce our first speaker, our sole speaker, Mary Mark McCullough, and um, Maureen DeBurka, a name which will be familiar to, to many of you in a sense of a certain age, indelibly uh, associated with, with varieties of, of radical action, uh, political and social action in the 1950s, the, sorry, 1960s, I beg your pardon, 1970s and so on. Her name also appears, you'll find, in the National Archives in various uh, uh, Department of Justice files and so on as, as for, for, her, uh, uh, for her radical connections and so on. It, it's interesting, Rory, I thought she was actually wearing the American colours. I thought this was some, the sign of some mellowing, but she assures me it's revolutionary France that she's honouring rather than uh, Trump's America. Rory, uh, uh, I, I should mention that has an honorary doctor from the NUI, but she doesn't use the style uh, Dr. de Berka. So I'll hand over to her. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of you, first of all, it's very difficult to remember that when I'm talking about the 60s, we're, we're talking about, you know, so long ago, 50, like the 60s to me seem, yeah. you know, when you get to my age, it seem, seem to be the other day. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'm not going to talk about something that you already know and that you could probably speak about a lot better than I can. It's just that um, a lot of the, say, say, when people talk about the, re the revolutionary 60s, what they're really talking about is the very late 60s. Because the early 60s were just as bad as the 50s and the 40s and the 30s. So and you really what you're talking about is the late 60s, early 70s, when things began to change. Uh, now, the, the, I suppose in a way I'm qualified to speak about what life was like before that, because I lived through it. Um, uh, uh, so I, I kind of have, and also I lived through it, but also I then um, kind of uh, lived long enough, if you like, to challenge the things that I had lived through, some of the things that I had lived through, to try and change them with varying degrees of success or failure, but at least uh, tried. And um, I suppose the Everything, everything pre, pre the revolutionary era, if you like, not everything, but I suppose 90% of things come down to the Catholic Church. And I don't want to be, you know, get into the old thing of knocking the church all the time, but you have to admit that life in Ireland before things began to change was practically totally controlled by the Catholic Church. Um, and this seeped into every area of life, particularly, though, for women. Um, the, um, it, it, it would have affected men as well, but in, 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 in less serious ways, if you like. Um, they, there was a piece in, there's no date on this, but there was a piece in the Irish Times, and it is, whoever, whoever uh, took the picture for it, um, I don't know if you can see it there, four churchmen there, and the, the, the heading of that is 10 things that a woman couldn't do in 1970. Uh, but it's nice that they have the, 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 the churchmen there. Um, and... Um, I suppose these, I, I just quickly run through the ten, ten things uh, and, and, and see how, how, how this 
paralyzed life, if you like. Life in pre-60s life was sort of stuck in a groove. Um, and to move out of that groove was quite challenging. People did, brave people did, uh, but mostly people who wanted to challenge it just went away. They didn't stay to, 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 to fight the corner, if you like. Uh, and in a way you can see why. But anyway, I'll just run quickly through the, te the, the ten things, and this will kind of show you exactly where things were for women pre-late 60s. She couldn't keep her job. <laughs> oh, you know, talk about affecting your life. A woman keep, couldn't keep her job if she got married. So that has stultified a human being's life. At a young age, she's totally stuck. She can do nothing about it. It affected the whole of her life. It wasn't a, a little thing, a, a, a little small minor thing that maybe she couldn't do, go to this place or she couldn't go to this place. This stopped her life dead. Uh, she couldn't sit on a jury. Well, that, I suppose, in a way, uh, is more a, a sort of a civil liberties, human rights kind of thing. It, it wouldn't have affected that many women. It would affect women who came before the courts, of course, um, in that they were going to be judged by property-owning men, exclusively. Uh, so that uh, it did, a jury of, of your peers was not something you were going to get, uh, either man or woman. Uh, you couldn't buy contraceptives. Again, affected your whole life if you were married, because you couldn't plan your family. You couldn't say, this is the way I want my life to live. I can look after three children. That's all I can look after. Um, so that, again, affected your whole life if you were married. You couldn't drink a pint in a pub, and I'm not going to say that was very important. But, <laughs> uh, and it says here, I remember it very well, Nan McCafferty and a couple of her friends went into a pub, and uh, they, um, they knew they wouldn't be served pints. For some reason, for some reason which I can't now remember, as a woman you couldn't, first of all there were pubs that wouldn't serve you at all, but then there were pubs that wouldn't serve you a pint. Uh, and uh, anyway, Nell and her friends ordered brandies, two or three brandies as far as I know, and then they ordered a pint, and the, the barman refused. So they walked out and refused to pay for the brandies. <laughs> because they said their, their order hadn't been, um, they hadn't been given their order. She couldn't collect her children's allowances. Children's allowances were uh, exclusively paid to men. It, you know, that doesn't even need speaking about it. It doesn't make any sense whatever. She couldn't get a, a barring order against a violent partner if a man was beating her up. That was, she either had to walk out, but she couldn't get him uh, taken out of the house. Um, and you've got to remember, too, there was no such thing as, as, uh, as an allowance. If she did walk out, what was she going to live on? There was no allowance for her. Um, the home that she was living in could have been sold by her husband, who was usually the, the, the name on the, on, on the, on the house, uh, and it could be sold without her consent. So she would wake up one morning and find herself homeless. Again, 
without any uh, benefit to uh, or rehousing or anything like that. She just literally be homeless. Um, she uh, there was no such thing as rape within marriage, so she could not ever refuse her husband's um, uh, having sex with her husband, no matter how she felt about it. Um, she, her official place of domicile. I mean, this 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 defies belief. If your husband left you and emigrated to Saudi Arabia, from that time on, your official residence was Saudi Arabia, even if you lived in St. Teresa's Gardens. By law, your domicile was Saudi Arabia. And of course, there was equal pay. Uh, there were also, there were also, I was just thinking the other day, uh, just on my way in here, sort of, um, Things like uh, things which which um, that they affected women particularly, but there were also things like uh, you couldn't you couldn't go to a dance in Lent. Now Lent is seven weeks, and I think they they relented on St Patrick's night. You could go to a cave on St Patrick's night, but you couldn't actually go to a dance, and that meant that people couldn't organise a dance. So, uh, like it wasn't just people who wanted to go to a dance; it was the whole of society accepted that you couldn't go to a dance for seven weeks of the year. I mean, when you think about it now, it's unbelievable. Uh, if you did go to, to a dance, when you did go to a dance, and when you were allowed to go to a dance, uh, the women uh, paid less than the men. That was probably the only time when, 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 when it, um, when it uh, worked in women's favor. It was two bob in for, for a man and 150, or whatever, it was, whatever the coinage was at the time for a woman. Not very weird. Um, uh, the um, and it, it wasn't you couldn't go um, this also affected uh, men and women you couldn't go to Trinity College uh, without the permission of the Archbishop of Dublin um, because it was a Protestant thing and I always I always feel uh, an admiration for Gayburn's brother Al who was told he couldn't go to Trinity College and he promptly went to Trinity College. And the Archbishop, recognising a faith complete, said, okay, you're, you're in Trinity College, but don't join any of the societies. So he promptly, promptly joined four. <laughs> uh, you know, that, so I, as I said, there were always people who, who, you know, did their own thing, if you like. But the general thing was you wouldn't go to Trinity if the, if the Archbishop. And of course, there's no doubt in my mind, although I can't at all prove it, that the people who got permission to go to Trinity would have been the people who were outstanding, either financially or, or any other way. Like an ordinary, an ordinary bod from from the north inner city, if he was bright enough to get a get going to Trinity, would probably have been turned down. Um, so, and of course, at the time, as you know, the Archbishop of Dublin was was John Charles McQuaid, who was somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun. Um, <laughs> In, in all things to do with with the faith, but you know, it, it, you can laugh at it now, but it was so restrictive and so 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 cruel, uh, and it was it was a church that was bloated with power and control. That it you know they were you couldn't challenge them. You know they were they, they were the effective um, dictators, 
it, it was as if we had a dictatorship instead of a, an elected democracy, because they were the effective dictators of your life, uh, you know, legally and every other way. So this is this is this is, and of course, also you see, uh, at the time, um, people were poor. I mean, people are poor now, but it's not the same. It isn't the same poverty. I've lived through several periods of downturn, if you like, and uh, I think there's a there's a degree there's a there's a, a dissertation to be done by some student on the different the different levels of poverty when people say they're poor, uh, but the poverty in the forties and the fifties was no food in the house kind of poverty, you know. Uh, nowadays, you're poor if you can't afford the latest mobile phone. Um, but it, it, there was serious, real poverty, and this control by the church, it was a... Um, I suppose we weren't unique. I, I, it, it is possible that other Catholic countries had the same kind of um, uh, experiences, uh, particularly peasant countries, people with a peasant... Uh, peasant background, if you like, um, you know. Uh, but I, I don't know. I still think that in Ireland it was more, it was more offensive. Um, but the other thing that uh, pre the late sixties was, and this brings us back to modern times too, is the the. Um, the, the social conditions. Now, housing was in an appalling state. Um, and this is particularly upset to me because subsequently, as I say, that subsequently we took on some of these, some of these uh, issues. Um, it, wasn't so, it was, of course, that people hadn't access to housing, a lot of them. But it was also people who had access to housing, the, the, the housing, the, 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 the form of housing they had was appalling. When we started, uh, I was a member of Sinn Féin, old Sinn Féin now, I have to hasten to add, uh, pre-split Sinn Féin. Um, and um, at around, in around the 60s, when some of the lads who had been prisoners in England uh, um, came back, were released from prison and came back, they had obviously been doing a lot of studying while they were in prison. And um, they decided in their, in their wisdom that the way to go for the Republican movement uh, was to challenge, if you like, the social conditions of the day. And uh, looking around them, they came to the conclusion, which I think quite rightly, that one of the, that the major problems that people had was housing. Because I suppose if you don't have decent housing, you have nothing you know, your whole life is affected by your housing conditions. Um, uh, so they set up an organisation called the, the, the Dublin Housing Action Committee. And it's so tragic that, that uh, you need a Dublin Housing Action Committee again today, but you do. Um, and uh, so that the, the, I was active in that, and the result of that was I, I got to see quite a lot of the conditions that people were living in, particularly in, 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 in Dublin. Um, maybe maybe not so much in, in rural areas uh, who would have had kind of probably different different problems but um, 
there was a, a um, and, and a total refusal by the government of any kind. Uh, Labour was as bad as Senegal and, and Fianna Fáil to recognise that this was a problem. Um, having said which, I have to admit that they used to build local authority houses at the time. The, 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 the difference, the difference between then and now. But I remember, for instance. I remember going to, to a woman had uh, contacted us and she lived in Benburb Street. Uh, and she had, I think, five or six children and they all contracted scabies. And the doctor told her she would have to bathe each child separately and put this uh, cream or, or thing on it. But a child couldn't be bathed in the previous child's water. It had to be fresh water each time for obvious reasons and then put this on. And this was a three, it was it was certainly a three-story block. It could even have been a four-story block. And the only access to water in the whole block was a one tap, um, sort of on the ground ground level with, you know, one of these great big basins with one tap. And she she would go down and fill, 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 fill a, a large thing, bring it up, put it on the fire, she had a fire, they had those fireplaces in those places, heat the water, bathe the child, put, put the ointment on, throw the water out, go back down four stories, get another bucket of water, bring it up, heat it, and she had to do that several times every day. Uh, there were old people who, for some reason or another, uh, hadn't been able to buy a house or never bought a house for themselves and found themselves homeless with rents going up. It, you know, it, it all sounds terribly familiar. Um, and they were they were given place in a, in a place called an old uh, barracks, Griffith barracks. I don't know what happened to Griffith barracks in the end, but they'd be split up. You know, an elderly couple that had lived together 40, 50 years. They couldn't. They could, even even living in Griffith barracks. If they could live together, at least they would have support of each other. They were split up. There was all. I it it it. it it defies description what, what the housing stock was like at the time. And that was one of the things we took up. And, and all, we, all we asked, I mean, we could do nothing about the housing situation, obviously. But all we asked was that the government would A, recognise that there was a problem, and B, declared an emergency. And if they declared an emergency, then uh, things would flow from that. They'd have, you know, they'd have to house people, they'd have to seriously uh, get, get to grips with the, with the, with the, the, the list. Um, and uh, we achieved that. They did. They did accept that. The, uh, finally, eventually, accept that there was an emergency. We we reckoned at the time ten thousand ten thousand families on the housing list, and they declared an emergency. And housing stock did kind of increase. What we one of the things we did was because like like the present day, there were lots of empty property around the place. Lots of empty property. So we embarked on a campaign of squat, squatting putting families into the empty properties and that would result in a, 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 a eviction or an attempted eviction which we would stop or try to stop. Anyway, it was all it was all geared at getting it out there. I used to say that there were people who used to go through in their cars, go to work through Ben Burb Street. And they didn't know that on either side of them were these these apartment blocks and the conditions of the people living in them. They're, you know, they had no reason to know, if you like, but it was just that they, 
the two things would live side by side in the city. That people living it as that poor woman was with her six or seven children, and people driving through the area to get to more salubrious parts of the city, if you like. Um, then, of course, the, the um, I think what happened then was what happened then towards coming towards the end of that period uh, was. Um, and it all seems to have stemmed from America. Uh, and I think it might... I'm not sure what came first, the, the, uh, the opposition to the Vietnam War or the civil, civil rights movement in America, one or the other. But they both kind of came together. And by that stage, um, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of were very much aware of what was... Young people particularly were quite aware of what was going on in America. And um, I think it was that that started the, the awareness of people that you didn't really have to just sit there and, and accept this kind of, kind of life. That, you know, you could fight against it. You mightn't win, but at least you could fight against it. And, and if you were so inclined, you could fight on behalf of other people, even if you were comfortably enough situated. Uh, and I think that kind of, kind of started the, this is coming towards the end of the 60s. Uh, and um, I'm not saying that at that point people started to see, to loosen the, the, the bonds of the church. I, don't, I think that was too early for that to happen. But I think that, that um, uh, uh, sort of fighting against injustices, uh, which the church would, you know, um, which the church would have, would have not have been fighting against. Uh, I never remember any member of the church saying, Housing here is oh no I, I, that that's that's not true. Poor Father Sleepman, poor Father Michael Sleepman did, but like he was he was a lone voice in in, in, in the church. Uh, but you know they never get up on it. They, they might get up on an altar and give out about some poor 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 woman getting pregnant out of, out of wedlock, but they wouldn't get up on the pulpit and say there are people living in inhuman conditions in this city and, and really you should all go out there and do something about it. Uh, I never remember that, and I don't think anybody here would remember that, I, with, the, with the honourable exception of Father Michael Sweetland. Um, but, um, so, you know, they didn't, they didn't lead. Um, so somebody had to, had to do something about it. And as I said, we started off with the housing thing. Uh, and then young people began to... The, the, and the, the, the thing about the Vietnam War was the Vietnam War was the first war that was televised. Up to that, up to that, there's a war going on. But you didn't know what was happening. It was just a war, and yeah, certainly people were being killed. But it wasn't—it wasn't being brought into your sitting room every night. And there was there was actually a woman in America who was watching television one night, and she saw her son being shot dead in Vietnam, and or blown up. I don't know which it was, but but anyway, he was killed, and she watched this on television. So that kind of thing, uh, for the first time. Um, people saw what a war was like, literally. People who weren't fighting it. Uh, and this, this clearly affected the American public. Clearly affected them very deeply, to be fair to them. And, uh, they, 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 and all of this started, started a kind of a, a belief, a modern belief, if you like, that you don't have to sit down under unfair, inhuman conditions. You don't have to accept 
people just because they have a, a, a wrong colour on them, that what they say is, is true, or that you have to live your life by their rules. People began to, to question, simple as that, question, question. Uh, there were always were people who questioned, I'm not saying this was a new, you know, totally new for everybody, but it, it, this was a movement uh, of people questioning. Uh, and then, of course, when you question one thing, you then start to see other things that you should be questioning. And that, I suppose, in a way, the guards used to always say to us, you know, you're out on every, you know, everything, you're out on everything. But, and of course, we were, I suppose, to a degree. But it's, you know, when you saw, you saw the, the, um, the, the, the position of housing. Uh, so uh, I, I was a founder member of the Women's Liberation Movement. Uh, and one of our, I insisted on one of our ten demands being one family, one home. Because I'd already seen what the housing situation was like. And of course the housing situation affected women far more than men. Who at that time, because women couldn't work, uh, the men were outside most of the time. And the women were actually in the house. Uh, so that's how one thing led to another, uh, you know, the, the, the housing, the women's thing, thing. And then, as a result of the Vietnam uh, War, <laughs> um, I did three months in Mount Joy um, with a demo, uh, demo at the American Embassy. And I saw the conditions of women in prison. So you've got all these things, kind of, kind of one thing leading to another, leading to another. So I, when I came out, I, I got involved in a group called the Prisoners' Rights Organisation um, because of the conditions of prison, prisons, particularly women in prisons at that time. Uh, obviously, there's been a new women's prison built since, and I don't know much about it, but I, I presume it's, it's, it's more modern and uh, has more facilities. Uh, and then... Um, I don't know how one thing didn't lead, but it did, I suppose, to a degree, with what was going on in America, um, uh, was the anti-apartheid movement, uh, because you became aware that there was a whole nation of people in the world, a whole nation of people being discriminated against, without any apology, whatever. Uh, they were second-class citizens in their own country, uh, and you just felt that... You had to do something about that. They couldn't. They couldn't do it themselves. They needed international help. So we got involved in the anti-apartheid movement. So that was the way it went. And of course, all of that, all of that, and, and, and then, as I said, television coming on, on stream and everything, uh, things began to to, to, to to modernize, and the old the old Ireland disappeared. Uh, some some people might say some of the the good bits of old Ireland disappeared. Um, I think maybe it was a fair swap, some, somehow. Uh, I'd be, to be convinced that, that, that it was a bad deal anyway. Um, that um, um, people, people began to question. And I think that is the thing. People didn't question before the late 60s. Or if they did, it was a very, very small minority. As far as you were concerned, this was the life you were given to live it was the only way you were going to live it, and you didn't question. I mean, women didn't question their situation. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the prisoners didn't didn't question their 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 um, uh, uh, situation. You just didn't question. Life was as it was, and it was enough of a struggle to put food on the table 
and to get to the end of the week so that, you know, you didn't have the energy or the strength or the, 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 the capacity to question and struggle. Now that is no longer so, thankfully. People can question everything and do. And whether you like what they're questioning or you, do you like the, 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 the way they, 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 um, the things they come up with at the end of things, so the answers to their questions, it doesn't matter. Everything, everything is questioned. And out of that will come a consensus of some kind, or people will simply say, we don't accept this, we're going to fight it. And that's, that's, uh, that is so important. Um, and and I, think, I think I'll stop there. Um, it's just that um, to remember, I suppose, what it was like and what we've come from. And to a degree, I suppose, to be, you know, we're not alone, but to be proud of the fact that we came through it and that we are no longer uh, controlled by any particular group, that we have a say in our own destiny. We have, a, and I, I mean this particularly with women, that we have, we have a say in our lives, maybe not 100% yet, but we're getting there. Uh, we have a say in how we live our lives and uh, what we do with our lives, and uh, we can go on questioning as long as we need to and do something about it. And I think more than anything that's important, that nobody sits down under a, under a disadvantage and says, I can't do anything about this, I just have to put up with it. Okay? okay.